This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. I'm here with Early. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, really good. So I'm excited to hear your story. I've read a little bit about from what you sent in. And um, yeah, it sounds like it's been lots of twists and turns and ups and downs. So I, I'm really, um, thanks for being here to share. It's great. Why don't you kind of start at the beginning? Why don't you walk us back to even your first drink? Where did it all begin for you? Yeah, so um, I grew up in rural Wisconsin, just like a regular, normal, healthy, childhood upbringing loving parents and stuff like that um but for some reason i started drinking when i was 10 years old um i remember me and my best friend at the time stole miller high life from her friend or from her parents fridge and then dumped kool-aid into it because we were little kids and it was too gross to drink um (laughs) and looking back now um at the time i didn't have any cognition of like why i was drawn to substances, but looking back now, I realized that it was probably in response to being sexually abused as a child and not understanding those feelings and Mm -hmm. trying to get rid of them and um, stuff like that. And then as time went on, as I was a kid, um, I would just steal alcohol from my friend's parents' refrigerators as often as possible. Um, And then getting into my teenage years, just kept drinking and doing any drug I could possibly get my hands on just to kind of try to feel different and to fit in and to make friends. Um, So that's kind of the beginning, I guess. Yeah. So when you first drank, did it feel just kind of like relief? Because a lot of times, and there's some really good science behind this, um, when you have a history of, of intense trauma and life just doesn't feel good, life feels prickly, life feels on edge, and you have that first drink because it does numb the brain a little bit and you know reduce how fast your brain can think, like your actually thought processes, it can feel like, oh, where's this been? Like, this is, this is what I needed. Was that your experience or not really? I guess I don't exactly remember what it felt like when I was that young. I don't remember a lot of stuff about being a kid. I feel like I kind of pushed it out. Um, But I do remember different feelings of drinking as a teenager and just feeling like super intense euphoria, like nothing else on earth could give me that feeling. And it only lasted like for a certain amount of time in the beginning. And then very quickly, like even by the time I was 18, alcohol started to be like, a demonic force almost like instead of that euphoria that I previously felt. So yeah, I mean, definitely in the beginning, it felt like an appropriate escape and if alcohol and other drugs just felt like, yeah, it felt, it felt euphoric, but it very quickly sort of changed after that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. As it does, unfortunately. So, um, so then what happened? That's so, telling of just putting the Kool-Aid in the beer to you know make it taste okay. I just, yeah, I remember doing, um, basically I was over at a friend's house and everybody, it was the worst thing we ever, it was so gross, but it was a slumber party and we all wanted to try drinking, but we didn't want her mom to know. So we took a little, she had this huge liquor cabinet, took a little bit out of every single bottle and poured it into one thing. And it was so disgusting tasting. I was like, what is happening? But of course we drank it anyway, because that's what we were trying to do. 
Yeah, so when I was 18 was the first time that I thought I wanted to quit drinking because my anxiety and the hangovers and just like the destruction that was starting to take over in my life, like I was in college for like half a semester or something and I dropped out because I never went to class because I was drinking and hungover, basically just like on a bender the whole time I was attempting to go to college. Um, yeah, and then dropped out and had just crazy anxiety and all I did was drink all the time and, and I wanted to quit. And um, the first time I tried to quit, it was like 12 hours or something before I was, the anxiety was just so overwhelming that I was like, oh my God, I have to drink again. Mm -hmm. My anxiety would be so bad that I felt like I couldn't even leave my house. Mm -hmm. um, so I would send other people to go buy me alcohol. And plus I was 18. Mm -hmm. um, so other than like places that wouldn't card me or whatever, most of the time other people bought me alcohol anyway. But it was just like kind of back and forth like that throughout my whole 20s. I would get super determined to quit drinking, but then have no tools or skills or knowledge or anything. Um, and like the crazy like co cognitive dissonance or whatever, where like part of my brain was like, I need to quit drinking. I want to quit drinking. And then the other part of my brain was like, no, the only thing you can do is keep drinking. And it drove me totally crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's my son and I were actually talking about this recently because he's like, so weird. I know that if I eat too much ice cream, it's going to be bad for me, but I have this part of my brain that wants to. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I can tell you about that. It's called cognitive dissonance. And it's comes from really like the, the hind part of your brain, the animalistic part of your brain that gets addicted and the front of your brain that wants to make good decisions from tomorrow. And they can't, they can't agree. And so, you know, really the battle I think is which one will win, you know, which one are you going to pay more attention to? And I think there's lots of tools to help you pay attention to the, the better that your higher self, but um, obviously so young, where are you going to find those tools? So what did you try? What, what did you do next? Um, well, I just kept going back and forth. I'm like, I'm super uh, stubborn or whatever. And I, so willpower kind of lasted quite a long while for me. Um, nice. And then um, in my like older 20s and then now I'm 32. So in now in my early 30s, I've finally started to like crack the code. Like for a while I tried AA and it just absolutely did not work for me. Like being told I'm like powerless and defective or whatever. Um, like those, I did the 12 steps. I had a sponsor. I went to, I did everything they said they would do and it didn't work at all. Going to the meetings like totally depressed me and I would leave like wanting to drink more. And the thing about AA is that, um, if the program doesn't work for you, the literature tells you that you're not doing it good enough. So it mm -hmm. like makes people feel ashamed about themselves and they tell you that the program works for everyone. And there's no one thing that works for everyone, you know? And I'm happy for the people that it does work for, but for me, it was like more of a detriment to go through. They just, they kind of beat you up about it. They're like, list all of these things that make you feel terrible about yourself and your character is defective and you're powerless and all this stuff. And that just, it didn't work for me. But as time went on, I found things that did work for me, especially nowadays. There's books like your book came out and Holly Whitaker's book and um, Paul Churchill's book and all of those where it's like science-based and positive and empowering and stuff. And I always felt like I struggled alone, like 
the problems that I had with alcohol were just my problem in my head. And then when I saw them on paper um, from people who did research, it, it took away the shame and it kind of like destigmatized the experience that I was going through and being able to read stories of people that went through the same experience that I did that are like from a totally different background and had completely different lives. And it all just kind of like overlapped and became clear. That was super helpful for me. And then I just kind of tried, I listened to like interviews on the podcast and everything like that, which is why I feel it's super important for me to like kind of speak my truth too, because listening to all these other people helped me so much. Um, and I just did everything that everyone suggested and it all kind of piled up together and it's finally like leading to success in my life. So different things like taking care of myself on a baseline level, like eating healthy food, getting the right amount of sleep, drinking water, and then taking care of myself on a spiritual level with like um, doing gratitude practice and mindfulness practice and meditation and stuff like that. Um, sort of just hammering down and trying all of those things and leaving behind the stuff that doesn't work for me and keeping the stuff that does and understanding like the science of how addiction in the brain works. It just like, it spun my life around 180 and understanding that previously trying to only use willpower was doomed to failure, you know? Like, I don't know. That's kind of what's been helping me so far, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Um, so I think we sometimes, I've heard it, uh, I heard this concept years ago of the big domino. And the, the concept was like, what is the one thing that if you did that one thing, it would make everything else easier or irrelevant, right? And so if you are, let's say, um, I don't know, I can't even think of a good example, but it was like a decision-making, it was actually a decision-making concept for business. And it was like, okay, if you uh, say you're struggling with your marketing department and like, what is the one thing you can do? And, and you can list all these things, like you could increase your brand awareness or blah, blah, blah. But what if you hired a CMO? Like, what if you hired a chief marketing officer? That would be the one thing that if you did that thing, all those other to-dos, all those other tasks would go away and become irrelevant. So anyway, I heard this concept and it, it struck me. I'm like, oh my gosh, that was alcohol for me in my life. Like, what was the one thing that if I did it, all these other things would fall in place. So I, you know, I always wanted to eat healthier. Of course, everybody does. I always wanted to exercise on a regular basis. I wanted to, you know, meditate and do things like that. But I like fits and starts and it was always that alcohol was more important or prioritized or I'd get drunk and want junk food or whatever. And then when I did that, all of those other things, it was, it was like it was truly the big domino and then all the other little things fell into place like so much more naturally. And I think that, um, just like you're saying, there's such a, I think there's a really good reason for that is when, when we stop numbing and escaping, then actually not only do we want to do these things from a really positive place, but we need to too. Sometimes I, I am frustrated though, because sometimes I sit here and I just like, really, I'm going to have to exercise and meditate and journal like all the time in order to just feel good. Like, really? Like I need that much maintenance. But we do and it's worth it. And one thing that I didn't mention, which is like, obviously, I got a therapist and well, I went through like a bunch of different therapists before I found one that worked for me. But um, that was huge. And that's like a thing that people stigmatize and are ashamed of too. They're like, oh, you're going to therapy, like there's something wrong with you. But the truth is that when people 
take care of their mental health, they should be applauded for that, you know? So when I started to get help with my mental health, um, that was like a huge push forward in being able to stay sober. Although at first they tried to medicate my sobriety. So they would give me like antabuse or naltrexone or any one of those like pills that's supposed to cure alcohol addiction or whatever. Um, And they're like helpful sort of, but they also weren't the right thing for me. And actually I was talking one time to my friend who, she has a problem with an addiction to opiates. So we can kind of like relate talking about addiction stuff. And she had gotten put on one of the same pills and we were talking about it. And she was like, these things are like throwing Tic Tacs at a shark. (laughs) And I totally, absolutely agree with that sentiment. You can't just like give someone a pill and expect like, a huge problem in their life, like alcohol addiction to just magically disappear. Um, but once I tried them, I was glad I tried them. And then I moved on and the more talk therapy and um, I did EMDR to process mm. trauma and all that stuff. It makes it, it makes it so much more manageable in life to be able to get through difficult situations when I, after I was able to like directly address the trauma that I'd experienced in my life. That's oh, so beautiful. It's so amazing. Yeah, you're right. It is, it is necessary and it is worth it. And it's, you know, we just have to make peace with the fact that like, you know, if you have a plant, you need to water it. Otherwise it's going to die. If you have a fish, you need to feed it and change the water. If you have a car, you need to change the oil. Like we are no different, but we expect that we will just be able to run without caring for all the parts of us. Like, yeah, we feed ourselves, but it's actually like the body is just part of the whole, you know, we've got the spirit, we've got the soul, we've got the mind, and all of those things need to be like equally really looked after to be um, whole. And, and it is super worth it, but it's, it's a lot of work sometimes. So would you mind telling more about like specifics about some of your practices that you do now? Yeah, I actually, from your book, learned about doing routines. Um, so I do a morning and an evening routine both. Um, And they include like getting outside, getting regular sleep, like doing a five minute meditation every morning. Um, Drinking water before I drink coffee is huge. Um, Yeah, I mean, oh, uh, making a gratitude list is huge. It seems like such a corny thing to do at first. I was like, how is writing down this stuff gonna help me at all? This is dumb. And then I started doing it And it was like, my brain changed. And now when something, when I have a loss, I can get, see it in perspective and it doesn't take over my life. And I can look around and be like, oh, I do still have a roof over my head and like a loving family. And I feel like my brain changed on a chemical level throughout using a gratitude list every single day. I think that was like an amazingly helpful thing. And then also mindfulness sounded super corny at first and I was like what so living in the present moment is going to change my perspective on everything but then it did (laughs) and now when it's like I find myself dwelling over the past or obsessing over the future if I do bring myself back to the present moment it makes me feel better (laughs) and yeah at first I just like I poo-pooed the idea of grateful gratefulness gratitude and mindfulness Um, but then once I actually implemented them in my life on a daily basis, 
my perspective changed and I'm a more content person every single day of my life. And I couldn't recommend it highly enough. That's so great. So um, one book that you might enjoy just because you did change your brain chemically and the, the neuroscientist that talks about that. So it was South African woman named Dr. Caroline Leaf. And she has a few different books, but one's called Switch on Your Brain. And it's just like, it actually gets into the specifics of how those practices do actually change um, what's called the dendrites and these parts of your brains. And it's basically like you have, you have pathways. So you think about the same thing every day and most of your thoughts are recycled. So 80 to 90% of what you thought yesterday, you're thinking today. And then that makes you feel a certain way. And when you actually start to proactively apply consciousness to change the things that you're thinking on a regular basis by looking for points of gratitude, you change what you think every single day and it changes. Um, there's an example that they did some studies and basically what happened was they had, uh, I think it was auditors or um, I think it was auditors, accounting auditors, and basically their entire jobs is looking for mistakes. And so they train their brain to look through and sift through financial records for mistakes. And what had happened is they noticed a huge increase in depression um, and un unhappiness because they translated that into looking for mistakes everywhere else. So now all of a sudden with their kids, they're always looking for mistakes. With their wife, they're always looking for mistakes. With their partner, they're always looking for mistakes. Uh, with their friends, they're looking for mistakes. You know? And so they're always looking for what's wrong. And it ended up being like a really interesting study because you can do the exact opposite. The only thing gratitude is doing is you're training your brain to look for what's right. And then all everywhere you see, sometimes I even notice, I'm like, I wonder if I don't give myself enough time to process my emotions, because I, I do think processing your emotions and feeling your emotions is really important. But I will notice in my brain that if something happens that isn't what I wanted to happen, so I don't know, my, um, I can't even think of an example right now, but if something happens and I'm like, oh, bummer, like almost instantaneously, I'm like, yeah, but there's gotta be something good about this. And sometimes I wonder if I don't even allow myself like I've trained it so far that I don't even allow myself to like uh, feel the negative. Cause I do think there is something to say like COVID for instance, like everything happened. And um, I think there is something to grieve for how things used to be and allow yourself to feel how different things are and allow yourself to be in that moment. And um, you know, my mind was instantly like, well, you know, drinking is going to get worse for people because they're stuck at home. But then awareness brings change and it will get better over the long term. And that was like my story from like the very beginning because everybody else's story was like, oh my gosh, it's off the rails. Like white claws getting sold by the dozen because drinking people are starting to drink at 11 and it's so scary. And, and like that story, I just felt like didn't empower me to like keep doing the work I was doing. So I was like, no, I need a better story. Um, but sometimes I wonder if, if you can go too far where you don't, like, I think it is a balance between letting yourself feel the emotion of the thing that's disappointing, but then training your brain to really look for what's right just over and over and over again. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said for that concept of like toxic positivity. Like a person does have to feel and honor their emotions and move through them. Like that's an extremely healthy perspective on it, but that being said, having a gratitude practice and on a daily basis, being able to look at the positive things in your life, it's, for me, it made me feel significantly better. You know, I still let myself feel bad if something ha bad happens. If I need to cry, I cry. Um, 
but I also don't need to sit there and obsess and dwell over things forever that aren't helpful. That's awesome. What a yeah. Um, <laughs> so how has it been going in your, your social life? Like since you stopped drinking, do you feel like it's, it's had, yeah. Like, has it been positive or intense or? Um, it's difficult because, um, I feel like this probably happens to a lot of people where when you drinking becomes your whole life, everyone around you are people who drink. Um, and I drink very, very intensely. So a lot of the people around me also drink very intensely. And a couple of like therapists I've had have been like, you need to get rid of all your friends that drink and get all new sober friends. And uh, I've never agreed with that sentiment because my friends aren't the type of people who are going to be like, oh, you can just have one, you know? My friends are the type of people that are happy for me if I'm not drinking. But it's also difficult for me now because I wanna help them, but I also know that I can't force anyone into changing either. And like my partner drinks and struggles with it and that's difficult. And like my very best friend drinks a lot and it's difficult. Um, so yeah, it's not perfect quitting drinking, but I mean, it makes me more available as an emotional support to my friends while they're going through stuff. And I know that if they decide they want to come to me to ask me questions about getting sober, that I'm going to be available. Whereas like previously, I, I was more of a drain on society than I was a fountain. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's, I love that visual. That's awesome. That's really cool. Um, and I think you're exactly right. I think the balance between not being judgmental and just being present, like sort of describe like be a houseplant, just be there for people because when they need you, they will ask you because they, you've been there. Whereas I think, you know, the approach that I took in the early days was very aggressive. And I think that I actually alienated people. Um, so they weren't even wanting to talk to me, but, and I think whenever you pick up a rope, and start pulling, someone else will pick up the other side and start pulling back. So if I was going to pick up this, like, oh, you should change rope, they would pick up the other side and be like, no, I shouldn't. And this is all the reasons why. And actually it was, you know, in hindsight, I can see that I would walk into social situations and because I was so kind of aggressive in my stance um, in terms of like, everybody should do what I'm doing, which was very arrogant at the time, but that's just where I was at mentally. I would walk into certain situations and people would be like, they would corner me to tell me how their drinking wasn't a problem. And I was sitting there thinking like, why are they having this conversation with me? Like, why do, why do people feel like they need to justify their drinking to me? And at the time I was like, what's wrong with them? But now I can see, oh, it was because of the energy that I was bringing. I was bringing like, you know, this energy of wanting to change everybody. So people were picking up the rope and they were defending themselves. I mean, that's what they would do, of course. And so it just made for something. But I will say that when I shifted that and, and got more into just like being there, um, it, it's a patience game, but it's amazing how influential that is. I always visualize it like water on rock, like you really, you know, changed the rock, like the rivers shape the rock. Uh, the Grand Canyon was formed by a river, right? And so it's like, if you just are there very gently um, and patiently. And it's also really difficult for just to be an ally in those situations because what you're up against is like the capitalist machine yeah. that fuels like the alcohol industry. And if there's a product out there that tells people, I will relieve your stress, 
you need me in order to relax. You need me in order to have any sort of fun or celebration. Like that product is geniusly marketed to people, even though it's like, it says it'll relieve your anxiety, but it causes it, but you believe it's going to relieve it. So like, if there, if there honestly was something out there that would make you relax, relieve your stress and make you have fun, everybody's going to buy it, you know? And so us as allies of our friends who want to help them feel better up against the capitalist machine, it's a difficult battle. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt. And it's like, it's like anything. It's just a small minority, you know, one, one person at a time, one conversation at a time, which is what's so awesome about you coming here to share your story and speak out about it because it really is like one conversation. Like somebody here is like, oh, just a little something that changes, changes something for them. It's just great. Yeah. And I guess, okay, sort of like one of the main reasons I wanted to come on a podcast was to kind of explain, give a different perspective than I normally hear. Like, I feel like a lot of times the perspective that I hear on the podcast is kind of like, like a wine mom kind of thing, which obviously that's like a totally difficult situation for people to be in, or like just people who are sort of in the mainstream of society and I haven't ever heard my story told really, which is like a person who's like living on the very margins of society. Like I'm a punk and a queer and I spent most of my adult life um, like hitchhiking and riding freight trains across the country and drinking steel reserve with home bums under bridges and smoking crack with home bums under bridges. And I just don't think I've ever heard anyone come on a podcast and talk about a drinking box wine that you found in a dumpster and still finding a way to recover after that, you know, like being a person who is like disgusting and sleeping in bushes and vomiting in, I don't know, on the side of the road in the storm drain, you know, like I've, when I learned about uh, like cognitive dissonance and neuroplasticity and all those sorts of things. Previous to that, I had felt that my life was completely hopeless, that there was, I was too far gone and that there was no way to come back for it because I didn't understand what was going on in my brain. And someone else that I used to know who died from alcohol addiction, I would always look at his story and wonder if that was me or if I was going to end up like one of these people who magically got sober somehow. He basically, it was like he had a wife and a kid and his wife was like, if you don't quit drinking, I'm going to leave you and take the kid. And then he didn't quit drinking. And then he needed a liver. And the doctor was like, you have to quit drinking for six months or you can't get a liver. And he didn't quit drinking. And then he died <laughs> of multiple organ failure. And I went to high school with this kid. So he was, I mean, we were both 27 when he died. And so I looked at him and I'm like, is this my future? You know, like, am I going to like die drunk out in the woods somewhere, you know, like alone? And, or am I going to be one of these people who somehow figures it out and gets sober? And the only way that I was ever able to realize that it was possible for my brain to change was learning about science and reading books like your book and seeing that there was a potential for hope, that I wasn't doomed to being that scumbag on the street with a cardboard sign asking you for your spare change, you know, like that, that wasn't 
that wasn't what my life was like doomed to be. There's like a potential for me to change the way my brain works and get back to a normal life. I still live on the margins of society. I'm still a total freak. You know, I live off grid in the woods, um, but I'm not like drinking beer for breakfast and then vomiting up the beer and then drinking more beer right after that. You know, like that's not what my life is doomed to be. If that makes sense. <laughs> makes so much sense. I am, um, I'm sure from reading this naked mind, you know that I grew up off grid in the woods. My dad still lives off grid in the woods. I think it's a pretty awesome existence personally. So it's very, very cool. On the uh, margins. <laughs> yeah, and it, it is just so, it, I don't know, it's, it's so cool. There's something very powerful to be said for individuals that really just say, you know what? I want to live differently and out of the, and I mean, in all ways, especially because now like sobriety is part of that for you um, or overcoming alcohol. I don't know how you term it. Like I don't personally use sober as much, but like, I think that's so, it's so cool because it's just another area of saying, you know, I'm just going to swim against the grain and it takes a really strong person to, to do that. And um, yeah, it's just awesome. And I also think that your story is so powerful because what you're talking about is one of the very, very clear scientifically, one of the reasons that people won't change is because they don't believe they're able to. So if you, there's all sorts of studies that say if people don't think something is able to happen or they're able to finish something, they won't even start um, pretty much no matter what. And so that one belief of, will I be able to do this or not? is so crucial to even taking that next step. If there's no hope that it's possible, which I think is one of the coolest things about the whole, um, and, and the science on neuroplasticity is relatively recent. I mean, it's, it's within decades. It's not hundreds of years old. It's, it's really new of saying, wait, anybody at any time, anywhere, like we are able to change. Like our brains can actually physically change like the structure of our brains can physically change again the, that book by dr leaf is so cool for explaining exactly how that works but um when people don't think they are going to be able to they won't even start i mean it, you you just don't even like what would be the point of doing something that you don't believe you can and so i think just showing that it is possible no matter what you know no matter having overcome crazy trauma living on the fringe all of this stuff like yeah, it's, it's really possible. It's possible for anybody, like anybody who is like awake, alive and breathing. I think there's a chance you're alive. If you're alive, there's a chance. Like there is, um, it reminds me of the dumb and dumber scene. Like it's one in a million. You're telling me there's a chance. Well, I think it's a lot higher than that, but like, yes, there's, a, there is hope like almost like no matter what, if you're breathing, there's hope, you know? And I think it's just so powerful and important. Yeah, nobody is too far gone. I tried to quit drinking for 13 years. The first 12 with like willpower and then the last one with actually learning real skills. And if anybody was too far gone, it was me. You know, like I was, I couldn't even stand up and I was laying there vomiting, still trying to drink more alcohol because I thought it was the only, I knew it was the only thing that could make me feel better in that moment. You know, like I was so sick, I couldn't eat or like stand up out of bed. It was horrible like I've been to the mental hospital twice about it and yeah I just don't like 
I want people out there to know that if you think you can't do it, you definitely can. <laughs> I love that. It's so awesome. So great. Well, I'm going to ask you the question um, that I asked kind of at the end, but if you were going to go back and talk to early of, of early days, <laughs> for the fun, um, what would you tell her about like, you know, in those 12 years of willpower and, you know, really being stuck, um, you know, both having alcohol make you sick and alcohol be the only thing that can take that sickness away even for a minute. What would you tell her about what life is like now? Um, I would just say that don't lose hope and keep trying and that it's possible. And that now this is the craziest part about it. I never thought I would not have cravings. And I heard other people in different interviews on podcasts be like, I don't know. I just don't have cravings anymore. But previously when I'd quit drinking, I'd be like fiending for it. It would be all I could think about. And now I don't care about alcohol. There can be a bottle of vodka just sitting six feet away from me. And I don't even give it a second glance. So I would look back and I would say, it's possible to change. You can change, keep trying, and you can have no cravings and live a life where you don't care about alcohol at all. It's not even a part of your life and it doesn't matter. So I guess that's what I would say. It's so cool. I love that so much. And I'm sorry, I should have asked you what pronoun you prefer. Yeah, right. they, them. <laughs> okay. I was listening and I was like, I probably messed that up. So I'm, I apologize. But would you, what would you tell them about this? And it's beautiful. It's just so awesome and so inspiring. Um, so is there anything else that you'd want to share with people? I don't know. <laughs> Not that I can think of. <laughs> Thanks for coming and getting through the nerves and, um, you know, telling your story again. I think it's, it's really just, it's awesome. It is so good to, to hear um, that there's hope, you know, kind of no matter what. It's just beautiful. It's really cool. I agree. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Did you miss this Naked Mind Live? And do you maybe have a little bit of FOMO? But don't worry, I've got you covered. In fact, I had the entire event professionally recorded and it's available digitally. Transformation in your living room. Yep, that is what it's all about. You can grab your digital ticket at thisnakedmind.com forward slash digital ticket. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today. Thank you.